I'd like to thank everyone for gathering here this morning. On behalf of the family, I can express the gratitude that they have in their hearts for each one that has assembled here. I know that many of you are praying for them, have been praying for them, and I would encourage you to continue to pray for them as they mourn in the natural course of things over the loss of a husband, a father, a brother, a son. And we're here today to think about not just a life lived, but a life given to Christ, and ultimately to turn our eyes onto Him. It'll be a simple service. I just give a courtesy call if you have your cell phone. If you haven't turned it off, now is the time to silence it and turn it off. But our plan here is just to turn our eyes onto Christ. I will make a few marks after prayer, and then faith will come and sing, and then we'll have the committal. So thank you for coming, but we're going to turn our hearts onto the Lord. I invite you to pray. Let's seek the Lord. Our Father, we come this day. We realize, Lord, that Thou art loving, Thou art good, and Thou art kind. And we come today to honor and praise Thee, to thank Thee, God in heaven, for Thy mercy. And as we think of our dear brother Paul today, as we consider him, as our memories come flooding back to us, as we recall events and circumstances that each one of us have that relate to our dear brother, we pray, God in heaven, that you'll sanctify these thoughts. And help us, Lord, to learn what we need to learn. Thy word tells us that it's better to go to the house of mourning than to that of feasting. We pray as we mourn, as we sorrow, as we grieve, as we lament. At the same time, our hearts will be turned in joyous praise to a God who loves sinners and sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Bless us here. Give help, meet with every heart, and extend thy kingdom, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. When I first arrived in Greenville two and a half years ago or thereabouts, one of the first evidences of encouragement in my ministry related to our brother Paul. You minister the word and People say things, they will pass remark, they will uh, sometimes at least say that a message has been encouraging or whatever, appropriate to the occasion. But he was one of the first to come to me privately and to express just how God was using the Word in his life. It was evidenced also by his participation in the prayer meetings, his assembly with the people of God to pray for the Word of God, and his excitement, his overall excitement in hearing the Word. As we gather here today, we have lost a member of what we might term Amen Corner, and heaven has gained one in return. One who would listen and assent to the truth of God and encourage the preacher and remind all the listeners of the congregation that truth has been expressed and everyone should give their hearty assent to those words. As a preacher, we enjoy those who actually engage with the message, who listen to the Word of God. And those amens often are a little reminder that at least someone 
is following along in the remarks. As we heard the news in the throes of COVID-19 that our brother had taken very ill, we were at one point, and certainly a conversation I had with Jeanette on the telephone, it would have appeared that Paul was close to the end at that point. The Lord was pleased to spare him for a time. But we gather here today realizing that he has fought and God has sustained him even in one sense against what ought to have taken his life over a year ago. But we gather here and I thought, what do I say? What do I say to you, Jeanette? What do I say to you, Paul David? Mrs. Avila, the rest of the family? What remarks have any of us got to say when a family sorrow at the sudden passing of a loved one? And it is in these moments that we learn again the importance of turning to the Word of God. So my mind was immediately scanning through Scripture all these past days. What, what do we say? Where would God have us to consider His truth for this occasion? And I want to leave one verse with you. It's found in John chapter 13. The very first verse, I made some passing remarks from this text very recently. My mind was drawn to it again. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. The scene put before us is set by the writer of the gospel that this is before the feast of the Passover. This is not put in because it is without significance. The feast of the Passover was the feast that marked to the children of Israel the love of God for them. It was that singular feast, though the feasts had so much to teach us and many various avenues of instruction. The feast of the Passover, more than any other, reminded the people of God that they were loved in an unconditional fashion. It was a feast that illustrated, more than any other, the love of God for His people. The feast that reminded them, more than any other, that salvation is all of grace. There they were, in captivity, in bondage, and God delivers them with an outstretched arm in His mercy and in His love. This is salvation, men and women. Illustrate it for us in the Passover when those Israelites would assemble and go through the various forms that we find in Exodus chapter 12 of how they would, they would express their faith that God is a delivering, saving God. And all they were called to do was to trust in the power of the bloodshed that was applied to the homes of each Israelite family. Well, this is the scene. It's before the feast of the Passover. And we're told when Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world onto the Father. 
That is to say, when Jesus knew that he would be the Passover lamb, when he would be the propitiation for sin, when he would shed his blood for the sins of his people. And then we have this closing remark, having loved his own, the scene is set. And with the scene set, we're told, having loved his own, which where in the world he loved them unto the end. As these words I draw your attention to today, and I hope will be a means of comfort to the family, and that in days to come, our minds will return again to these, this simple truth. And note very simply with me, as we consider the love of Christ in this text, first its pre-existence. Having loved his own, having loved his own. This text tells us that the love Christ had for his people was already existing before this time. And when we scan the scriptures, we find that this love is far more ancient than we might ever imagine. Jeremiah 31 verse 3, The Lord hath appeared of old unto me, saying, Yea, I have loved thee with an everlasting love, what we might say an ancient love. Therefore with loving kindness have I drawn thee. We are not drawn and then loved. We are loved and then drawn. And so it was for Paul. He was loved and then drawn. Every Christian has this testimony. A testimony of the pre-existing love of Christ to them. Christ does not respond to your love to him and then love you back. He has loved you. So we love him because, 1 John 4, 19, he first loved us. When did he begin this love? When did this love commence? A few moments before our conversion? At the point of our birth? Sometime when the world was created? No. No. It is an ancient love, an everlasting love. And so when John writes, having loved his own, he is throwing our minds into eternity past. He is telling us of a love that exceeds the boundaries of time. A love for his people that is matchless and incomparable. Thus we conclude, any man that has truly known the love of God, who has experienced the love of God, who has testified to the love of God, wept over the love of God, was loved in eternity past. It's amazing. But we note also in this text not only the pre-existence of Christ's love, but the particularity of Christ's love, having loved his own. It's very particular. Christ's love is not experienced universally in the same way. There are people in this world that have heard of the love of Christ but never wept over it. And there are people in this world that almost every time they are reminded of the love of Jesus Christ, they are close to tears, if not in tears. We learn of this particular love in various passages. Ephesians 1 verse 4, that he hath chosen us in him 
before the foundation of, his, of the world. So his choice, the choice to experience this love is by him. And as we've already said, it is before the foundation of the world. And so Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians 2.13, God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation. And the sense there of from the beginning, it is this human understanding, it's the limitations of our language, but it points us back to a time that is God in His beginning, that is eternity forever, chose us to salvation. Or as we read in Acts 13 verse 48, as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. Not as many that believed were ordained to eternal life. That's not it. <laughs> as what man would understand, men would say, some men would say, well, I believe, therefore I experience eternal life. But the writer in the book of Acts, as many as were ordained, chosen, selected, elected to eternal life, believed. Did Paul Slimgan believe? Absolutely he believed. He believed in the Son of God who loved him and gave himself for him. He believed like many of us here this morning. We believed, but we believed because we were ordained to eternal life. And so we are his, having loved his own. And Christ has taken full possession of Paul Schlimgen today. I will that they be with me where I am. They may behold my glory. That's his prayer. We have thirdly, it's patience. The patience of the love of Christ. Having loved his own, which were in the world. Now if we read here, that he loved his own which were in heaven, he would understand why. They are the glorified saints. They are perfected. They are without sin. But that's not what we read. Christ's love is patient because he loves those that are still in the world. He loves them amidst their stumbling, amidst their doubting, amidst their failing. This passage puts before us the feeling of the disciples. And Simon Peter says in John 13, verse 36, Lord, whither goest thou? Jesus answered him, Whether I go, thou canst not follow me now, but thou shalt follow me afterwards. Peter said unto him, Lord, why cannot I follow thee now? I will lay down my life for thy sake. Jesus answered him, Wilt thou lay down thy life for my sake? Verily, verily, I say unto thee, The cock shall not crow till thou hast denied me thrice. Peter thought he could write his own story, the story of his own life. He thought he was in control. He thought he knew exactly how it would pan out, but he didn't. The story of every one of our lives looks different than how we would write it. That's true of every last one of us. Every last one of us has to learn that our story is different than how we would have penned it. We do not choose the sufferings we endure. We do not decide upon the afflictions that come our way. 
And Peter had to learn he was not in control. But however our story looks, whatever sins we commit, whatever folly we engage in, Christ's, Christ keeps loving his people. His people which were in the world. Child of God, he loves you in the world. He loves you still not yet perfected. He loves you amidst your backslidings and all your moments, indeed, maybe months of unbelief. Who is a God like unto thee that pardoneth iniquity and passeth by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He retaineth not his anger forever because he delighteth in mercy. He will turn again. He will have compassion upon us. He will subdue our iniquities and thou wilt cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. Micah 7. Finally, as we consider the love of Christ, we see also his perpetuity. He loved them on to the end. On to the end. It's always on to the end. Always. Never once has he failed to love one of his own to the end. Never once. Never once has he dropped out. Never once has he given up. Never once has he decided against that eternal decree. He loved them on to the end. On to the end of his own life and then coming resurrection certainly but I think John has more in mind than this it is on to the end of the end and his love never changes he loves us even when we do not feel that love have you been there wondering does he still love me Job had that question no doubt even the disciples had that question, standing in the boat in the midst of the storm. Carest thou not? Carest thou not? We might equally say they're asking the question, do you not love us anymore? He also loves us not only when we do not feel his love, he loves us even when we fight his love. Ah, yes. When we, when we fight as love, we fight as love when we sin, don't we? We fight against his love. The only proper response to the love of Christ is to, to worship and obey and give our lives to him. But we fight against it, we sin, and we learn that he loves us on to the end. That is to say, it's not dependent on our performance. So you see the series of questions in Romans 8, which I read to the family on Monday evening. Who can be against us is one question. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect is another question. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ is another one. Every one of us has to lament what we might term 
our lapses in judgment. We all have them. But Romans 4 verse 5 still stands. To him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. That's the gospel right there. To him that worketh not, to him that rejoices that salvation is all of grace, to him that regularly lifts up his heart and prays and thanks the God of heaven that he should ever set his love on him, to him who weeps and understands the amazement of grace, To him that worketh not, but believeth. Believeth in him that justifieth not the righteous, but the ungodly. His faith is counted for righteousness. This is why grace is amazing. This is why we have hope today. I'm going to ask Faith if she'll come and sing to us. Then after she sings, we'll read some selected scriptures and have the committal. Faith. to 
me his word my hope secure he will my shield and portion be as long as life endures the Jesus said, in my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And whether I go, ye know, and the way ye know. Thomas saith unto him, Lord, we know not whether thou goest, and how can we know the way? Jesus said unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. This time the psalmist in Psalm 39, he says, Lord, make me to know mine end and the measure of my days what it is, that I may know how frail I am. Behold, thou hast made my days as an handbreadth, and mine age is as nothing before thee. Paul, 1 Timothy 6, For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. Psalm 90, Moses writes, So teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. Let me ask you, are you ready? Is each one gathered here today ready? Are you prepared to meet the Lord? Do you know Christ? When Christ spoke to Martha at the death of Lazarus, we read, Jesus said unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. We might rightly ask the question, though it's not recorded for us, so what? So what, Jesus? You're the resurrection and the life. How does that affect me? He says, He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Believest thou this? Believest thou this? So Jesus tells us in John 8, Verily, verily, I say unto you, If a man keep my saying, he shall never see death. If we drink of Christ as the living water, if we eat from him as the bread of God, we shall never die. We will never see death.
So, we commit this body to the ground, earth to earth, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, in the sure and certain hope unto the resurrection of eternal life. This is the hope of every believer, that there is coming a day in which all that are in the graves shall hear the voice of the Son of God. Let's pray. Our Father, we have gathered here today in this simple fashion to remember that there is salvation for all that are in Christ. And we will miss our dear brother We will miss his encouragement. We will miss his presence until that day that we go to be where he is. But we think particularly of the family. We pray God in heaven that you'll be very merciful to them. This is a time where we find ourselves just like Thomas. We're, we're full of questions. How can we know the way? Many questions fill the minds of thy fallen people. We pray that the gospel will silence all those questions. The hope will stand not from an answer to every particular question. But from what we know is true of Christ and his love for his people. Having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them on to the end. So we pray for Mary today. We ask, Lord, you'll comfort her. We pray, God in heaven, for Jeanette. Gracious God, uphold her. May she know underneath and round about her the everlasting arms. We pray for Paul David. You will help him. You will draw near to him. You'll teach him thy ways. We pray for the brothers, for Jim, for Gabriel, for their families, for the extended family. Gracious God, support and uphold them all. And sweeten the memories as they reminisce, as they look at old photographs as they remember other days. We pray that there, in the shadows of sorrow, they will know the presence of Jesus. Bless thy word. May everyone here know that thy grace is amazing. And may we be taught all to number our days. Forgive our many sins. And here are prayers we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.